You stand with me for a reading of the word. Our scripture today is 1 John 2, 18 through 27. John, 1 John, excuse me, 2, 18 through 27 reads, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be manifested that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you but all, uh, about those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing whom you receive from him abides in you, and you will have no need to, for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, abide in him. You may be seated. Our message this week is titled, Who Are the Antichrists? Uh, in last week's message, Michael made the statement that we are heading into eschatology, or which is called the study of end times. Uh, today, in our verses, we jump into that very study with both feet. I don't have time to unpack every single believed view of the end times, but essentially there are three views that are believed by Orthodox Christians. The first is the pre-mill view, which simply is the belief that the world will get worse and worse, and all believers will be removed from the earth, and Christ's kingdom will come after his second return. The second belief is uh, what we call the amillennial view, which simply is the belief that Christ's kingdom is right now, um, Satan is currently greatly hindered or bound from doing anything substantially in the world, and at some point he will be released to wreak havoc on the earth, and then Christ will return to conquer the earth. The third and the last view is postmillennialism, which is simply the belief that the Holy Spirit will work through believing Christians to establish an entire believing world, upon, and upon completion, Christ will reign at that time. And so uh, Christ is, in that view, it is still Christ is reigning, but he's reigning through the believers versus returning, um, which we will, he will do upon the second return. Now, there are several in all three camps that would be extremely angered by the examples I just gave. Um, they would state it's oversimplified. All three claim to use proper hermeneutics. All three claim that they are the oldest view in church history. And all claim will uh, all three claim the majority of the reformers agree with their positions, um, and it is not to be oversimplified uh, on purpose. It's just we don't have the time to truly dive into all of this. Now, eschatology or end times is honestly greatly avoided by many many believers. Just studying it, they avoid it um, partly because there are many um, in all three camps. Um, that turn those belief systems into a religion themselves. And they become miserable to even discuss uh, 
end times with and try and gain better understanding. So many believers avoid uh, studying it altogether. Um, like James White coined, uh, and like many, I initially considered myself what I would call a pan-millennial, which means it will pan out in the end. Um, but just like Dr. White came to the conclusion, it's not sufficient for a true believer um, to have that position. And so I too came to the realization that I had to actually study end times. And my desire here today is not to answer every single objection or every single question um, about the end times, but to specifically deal with one aspect of the end times, and that is specifically the Antichrist or Antichrist. But I need, do need to point out that the point of studying end times is because your understanding or and or interpretation of end times directly affects what you're going to do now or what you're not going to do at this specific time in history. Secondly, it affects specifically your future, and I mean generationally. And recognizing that what you believe about end times is going to have a massive impact on what you're going to do generationally for your kids, your grandkids, and even your great-grandkids. And, and how you're going to be responding to everything that's taking place in the world generationally. Do you invest in material items for your own benefit, or do you invest in your children's children's discipline and instruction in the Lord, specifically everything from the wisdom to the monetary and, and ultimately setting them up better in that for them. The last thing I want you to ask, I want to ask you is this, what if we're living in the early church? What if we're not at the end? What if we're at the beginning? Now the people in the early church didn't think they were the early church. The ones that wrote scripture a lot of times did not think they were in the early church. Those that then came after them did not think they were in the early church. Every generation has thought they are in end of days. In the 1600s, Martin Luther thought it was the end of the world. In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards thought it was the end of the world. Every generation assumes that things are getting bad, and so the end of the world is upon us. That's how most tend to think, including now. Now, James White pointed out the dark summer of 1349, when half of Europe was actually dying from a plague. Half. Imagine half the world dying. That was a real pandemic, but it wasn't the end of the world. And so, not only does your belief on how the end will happen impact your practical application, but specifically where you think you are in that timeline also has a great effect. Now, before we get into our scripture today, I want to give a tiny sermon and a sermon and really give you some practical application on how to study the Bible, uh, because this is where things tend to go wrong in end times. Um, studying the Bible is essentially a combination of what we know of scripture, um, Greek and Hebrew interpretation, proper interpretation, and the proper historical grammatical interpretation based on language and study is how you study the Bible appropriately. So here are the guidelines to studying the Bible. First, private interpretation is not a license to distort the truth of the Bible. Think of it this way. When people say, well, my interpretation. No, I don't want your interpretation. What is the interpretation if you were not even born? That is the proper interpretation. And one of the most important lessons when we interpret is you always want to interpret Scripture 
with Scripture itself. Um, sometimes we, we don't have, you know, things can be unclear, and that's when we try and interpret the unclear with the clear, but the best way to interpret Scripture is with other Scripture. Um, scripture interpretation must stay consistent with the rest of Scripture. You cannot put one verse against, against another. If you do, a bell should go off in your head, and you need to relook at everything you're doing. Discernment is necessary in interpreting the Bible the way it was specifically written. Literal interpretation when it's literal, poetic interpretation when it's poetic, and historical interpretation when it's historical. Second, there's only one interpretation, meaning there's only one way to interpret this. Now, there can be infinite applications, but there's not my interpretation and someone else's interpretation. Either one is right and the other is wrong, or they're both wrong. You can't both be right with different interpretations. And don't confuse interpretation with application. You always, always interpret first, get the best detailed interpretation you can, then you apply. Um, third, there are 10 practical rules for interpreting the Bible. Number one, read the Bible like any other book. A verb is a verb, a noun is a noun, it's grammatically a book. Uh, two, read it existentially. Try and read it as if you were there in that passage. This is the, all scripture is for us, but not all scripture is written to us. When you interpret it, you want to be in the shoes of the individuals being written to, to gain the proper interpretation. Three, interpret the narrative by the didactic. And, and a great example of this is God uh, changes his mind in uh, with Abraham killing Isaac. Now, God didn't actually change his mind. That would make him not all-knowing, and therefore not God. So the didactic explains the narrative. If you reverse that order, it changes the interpretation greatly, and many have done this in error. Number four, interpret the implicit by the explicit. Interpret the implied by the detailed. Another way to look at it, Martin Luther says, interpret the unclear by the clear, not the clear by the unclear. Again, many, many errors have been made through this simple um, direction. Number five, pay close attention to the meaning of words, uh, specifically the meaning of the words in the original language, in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever it may be. Um, you've got to pay very, very close attention to that because they don't always translate well uh, to English. Number six, be careful to observe the various literary forms of the Bible. Seven, Understand the difference between Proverbs and law. Number eight, uh, difference between the spirit and the letter of the law. God requires both, not one or the other. Um, number nine, take very special care with parables. Usually only one distinct point uh, to each parable. And number 10, be careful with predictive prophecy. Uh, if you're wanting to get all those, that's actually in um, R.C. Sproul's book, uh, Scripture Alone. Uh, a great read, uh, and then he's actually got that actually on his website as well. Uh, lastly, one of the best ways to start trying to interpret is actually not to start with interpretation, but to start by reading the entire Bible chronologically, meaning reading it in the order that it actually occurs, because the Bible is somewhat out of order in certain places uh, because it's, it's broken into categories versus in chronological order. And so as you read the Bible chronologically, you want to mark verses you either don't understand, you don't like, or you don't agree with. 
and then just continue reading. Don't get bogged down when you initially go through the Bible and those things you don't understand, they kind of stick you in the mud, or worse yet, you don't like what they say or you don't agree with what they say. Uh, don't get stuck in those. Just make a mark and move and continue reading through. Don't give up. Now, after you've completed the whole Bible, then go back and study all the marks of the verses that you made. And what you're going to find is either that you didn't understand initially, and therefore by continuing you found the answer, or most of the things you don't like or didn't like, you really didn't understand in the first place, and so that will be cleared up as well. But if lastly, you still get to a place where you're in opposition to God and His Word, then you need to change your view, not rewrite Scripture in your own words. Understanding these basic rules to interpretation is incredibly key, not only to proper interpretation, but specifically to the study of end times and our study today. I also want to challenge all of us that are listening, that are here, specifically for proper interpretation of all of Scripture, but also looking at your church leadership and how your church structure is set up. A believer and or a church must get three things biblically correct in order to have a unified, consistent, and coherent interpretation throughout, which then leads to proper worship of the church. The first is the proper interpretation and theology of creation. The earth is young, not old. End of story. Everything in Genesis 1 through 11 is a literal series of events. If you get that wrong, if you get Genesis wrong, everything else that follows is truly unknowable. The earth being billions of years old and or evolution or any other distortion of God's word calls into question the reliability of God's word. And then once you do that, when you call into question the reliability of God's word, then you call into question the reliability of God himself, which calls then into the question the reliability that he sent his son to die for us. And then once you get there, how do you actually know that his son did it? That's what it leads to. And that's what's wrong with interpretation and a theology of creation of an old, old earth. The second uh, proper interpretation and theology that is needed is the one of salvation, specifically the Reformed doctrines of grace and the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone, is the authority which explains both the five solas and the doctrines of grace. Remember, interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's why Sola Scriptura keeps everything unified, consistent, and coherent. Next, you have sola gratia. By grace alone is a sinner saved. Through faith alone, which is sola fide, all of which is completed by the work of solus Christus, by Christ alone, which is all done for sola deo gloria, the glory to God alone. And beautifully and perfectly interwoven inside the Reformation five solas are the doctrines of grace. And the doctrines of grace state, all have sinned, and all are radically corrupt from the inside out. They are unable to save themselves, including a half a percent. They do not assist in any way. And because, hear me, they are dead. Dead men don't save themselves. They what? They decompose. Next, the chosen or the elect do absolutely nothing. They are chosen solely 
by the sovereignty of God alone. After that, God's plan for saving mankind was from all eternity, by which, according to the riches of his grace and his eternal election, he designed the atonement to assure the salvation of all of his people. No one gets into heaven outside of his atoning work, and no one is missed or forgotten and winds up in hell. After that, God's eternal grace draws the chosen to himself, and it never fails. Never. Now, although he may and does draw all of us differently, if you are part of the chosen, his drawing will perfectly pull you closer and closer to him from the point of being born into sin, drawing you then to your salvation, making you more like his son, and then finally drawing you into glory in heaven with him and his son, where the perfection of effectual grace is completed. And the last doctrine of grace is the preservation of the saints, because the last four components that I just described are a complete work of God alone, then the continual succession of your salvation cannot and will not be undone. Because in order for that to happen, God would have to fail. And if God fails at his own plan, he's not God. All of that is required for the proper interpretation and theology of salvation. And the third piece for proper interpretation of all scripture, and we must get biblically correct in order to have a unified, consistent, and coherent interpretation, is the theology and interpretation of end times. Now think of it this way for your own growth and interpretation, but also for the church and the flock they lead. If you can't get the beginning correct, what is the likelihood that you will get the middle correct? If you can't get the middle correct, can you get the end correct, or did you understand the beginning in the first place? And lastly, if you can't get the end correct, what before have you gotten wrong? And that brings us to our scriptures today. Now, verses 18 through 27 are some of the most debated verses in all of scripture, specifically for the end times. And as you look at verse 18, it breaks, verse 18 itself breaks into three parts. The first part and the end of the verse point to the time period. Children, it is the last hour. From this we know that it is the last hour. The last hour is our time, and that's crucial uh, to our verses today. The second point is, just as you heard, that Antichrist is coming. And third, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. So what does John mean by the last hour? Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 23. Now, I need to set up a little bit of context um, before we go into actual Matthew 23. Going back to Matthew 21 starts with Jesus entering back into Jerusalem in his last week before his crucifixion. Matthew 21 starts with Palm Sunday, the riding of the donkey. Now Jesus enters uh, Jerusalem, and he heads straight to the temple. Now, a little context of this. In Leviticus, when you have a diseased house, you have um, disease ridden throughout the house, you would send the high priest to investigate not once, but twice. And if on the second time there was still disease, you would burn the house to the ground. 
That's the first thing I want you to know as we go into chapter 21. The second thing is remember whose house is the temple. It's Jesus' house. So Jesus returns to his house. Whose house? His house. And who does he find in his house? The prophets and the ones that he sent ahead of him? Nope. They killed all of them. Instead, he finds squatters in his house. And not only that, the squatters have enslaved his people. Not only did they kill his prophets that he left in charge, they killed them and then they enslaved his people. And instead of returning home to find a clean, well-taken-care-of home, Jesus returns to a disease-infested cesspool ran by the squatters. And so he drives out the disease a second time, only the disease doesn't die. And so therefore, according to Leviticus, what is to come is the destruction of the home, meaning the temple. And so then you have to have an incident of, as you move through chapter 21, you have the incident of the fruitless fig tree, which is a picture of what he just left of his home. And so Jesus curses it, which is a continuation of the diseased house. After this, Jesus starts having all of the negative parable interactions with the squatters. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. First, you have the parable of the two sons asked to go to work. Then you have the landowner who sent his slaves and workers ahead, and they killed them and beat them. And so he sends his son and they kill him. Um, all of that... And it ends, Matthew 21 ends with this. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard about heard the, his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Matthew 21, 45. Then we move into Matthew chapter 22. And this is one of my favorite chapter openers, um, especially if you understand the context of what just happened in 21. So Matthew 21 ends with the Pharisees understanding that he was speaking about them. And then Matthew 22 opens with this. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, "It's as to say, ah, good, you understood me. Let me indict you some more. That's how he opens chapter 22. And so Jesus goes into the next parable of the wedding and all that were invited, and he goes to explain those that didn't show up, um, and that there were counterfeits that end up staying inside, and they were thrown out. And then the parable ends with, For many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. After that, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to start testing him. And so the Pharisees bring up the Roman tax question. The Sadducees ask about a woman who married seven brothers and all the brothers died. Because that's a logical question and a legit question. And Jesus ends Matthew 22 with his question about the son of David being coming from, uh, or excuse me, the son of David being the Christ. Yet David calls him Lord, and he asks the Pharisees, how is it that David calls his own son Lord? That's biblical sarcasm, and it translates to checkmate. That's what that question, and the chapter ends with this, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question, Matthew 22, 46. And so that's the context 
that leads us into chapter 23. And chapter 23 reads, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, and they themselves are unwilling to move them with their so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and all are your brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called instructors, for one is your instructor, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte, and then when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. You fools and blind men, for which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctify the gold, and whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sacrifices the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary, swears both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. Now that's huge. In other words, whoever swears by the things that are not me. That's the claim that he's making. And uh, verse 22, and whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the houses of the cup and the dish, but on the uh, inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the inside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which out on the outside appear beautiful, but the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way you also outly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Now listen very, very carefully to this next part. Verse 30, And say, If we have been living in the days of our fathers, 
we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets, meaning my prophets. Fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? On account of this, behold, I am sending your prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all righteous blood shed on earth. And from the blood of the righteous, able to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now this is key to our verses today. Verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now this generation, this in the Greek means this, the same. No future tense, as the premillennials claim, present tense, at that time. And for our woke listeners out there, if you prefer, Jesus is saying, you people. Biblically, a generation is considered 40 years. How long did they wander in the wilderness? 40 years. And that was for the sinful generation to perish. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. Now listen, verse 38, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What he's saying, this is no longer my house, but your house, the squatter's house. And chapter 23 ends with, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, if you do not bow down to me, acknowledge me as the Christ, the Messiah, you will never see me again, because you will be in hell. Chapter 24 begins, verse 1, And coming out of the temple, and coming out of the temple, Jesus was going along, and his disciples came up to a point out the temple building to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be here left upon another, which will not be torn down. That is the context of Matthew 24. The temple, specifically the squatter's temple. Now verse 3 begins a famous yet often misinterpreted discourses of all of Scripture. And it's called the Olivet Discourse. And mainly, the reason that most people get this wrong is they don't go all the way back to chapter 21 and gain the context of the discourse leading up to this point. So verse 3, Now he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will happen, meaning the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now this is such an interesting question. It's really profound. Now, the disciples, like us, could at times be really thick-headed and not really understand anything that Jesus was doing. But this question, this question is extremely astute. Now, they asked, the end of the age, don't misunderstand. They are not asking about the end of the world. They are asking about the end of temple worship, the end of the temple being the center of their worship. 
And that is the context, again, of the discourse. And that's why we started two chapters ago. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and, and will deceive many. This is linked to our verses in 1 John today, so be aware of that. Verse 6, And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place. But that is not yet uh, the end. For the nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely a beginning of birth pains. Now one thing I want to mention before we begin verse 9. Many say there is a gap period between verses 8 and 9. In other words, up to this point, Jesus was speaking literally, and then he switches it up, and now there can be hundreds or thousands of years between verses 8 and 9. You know, the same kind of people that do that are the same kind of people who add years between the six days of creation. There's no reason to add days here. There's none. Because of the topic, the temple, the timing, and this generation. So verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and will be hated uh, by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. Again, John is linking this in verses uh, 10 and 11 for our verses today. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people will love and grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is the gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the world as witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, this is super important. In other words, when you see the destruction start happening, when a city starts being destroyed, the next set of verses are actually how to avoid being killed when the temple is being destroyed. And historically, those that followed the simple advice in the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And when the, those that followed this simple advice at that time were all saved. And the ones that didn't follow the simple advice, they all perished. So verse 16, Then those that are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out of that house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those that are pregnant and to those that are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now or even or ever will. Very simply, when the attack of the city starts, when the city starts burning, drop everything and run for the mountains. Literally run. And if you delay for any reason, you will perish. Woe to the pregnant. This is a local judgment to a specific time because you can escape it by simply running to the mountains. This is reminiscent of Lot fleeing with Sodom, uh, or fleeing Sodom and his wife looking back, and because she did, turn to a pillar of salt. And that's why Jesus says, drop everything and run. Now, realize Jesus is saying this around 33 AD. We know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's roughly 40 years. That's an entire generation. Verse 22, And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now the siege of Jerusalem is thought to have lasted approximately three years. And I don't mean um, war 
specifically warring coming in for that entire time, although wars did start. But where the city started um, crumpling was very, very quickly. And so basically things go from bad to worse. And as they're increasing, you, you can see these signs. And so verse 22 is giving a window when to be paying attention, which is what John will utilize in our verses today. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Therefore, if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Now, Josephus, one of the great Greek historians that was alive at this time, actually mentions a false Christ during that time that led people into the wilderness at the wrong time. And again, verses uh, 23 through 26 is linked today in John's verses. Now, verse 27, For just as the light comes from the east and appears even west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, let me say something before we continue to verse 28. Many will also stop here and create a gap of time because the words sound like unknowable prophecy. But as we continue, this isn't a kind of prophecy that's unknowable. It's judgment prophecy. Jesus is speaking of his coming judgment here, just as he speaks of his coming judgment to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3. The judgment of idols in Egypt in Isaiah 19.1 says, The oracle concerning Egypt, behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will shake at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. This is speaking of coming judgment, specifically the destruction of what? The temple of squatters. Now continuing verse 28. Whatever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall, uh, will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now all those words in caps, that is a direct quote from Isaiah 13.10, which was the judgment of Babylon. Isaiah 13.10, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not flash forth their light, the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Verse 29 is Israel becoming the new Babylon. As awful as Babylon was, and they were, they didn't uh, reject Christ. Jerusalem did that. Verse 30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will seek uh, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of sky, with power and great glory, and he will set forth his angels with great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree, which is why we started in verse 21. When its branches are already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. That's a timing point. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door, meaning Christ's judgment. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Again, Jesus is repeating himself, this generation, just in case you missed it, if to say within 40 years, this is going to happen. Now, I could go on and on and on um, where scripture is tying into each one of these points 
Um, but the point is the temple destruction is coming in 40 years time. And he's not talking about the end of the world. He's specifically talking about the last days of the temple. That's what John is talking about in verse 18. The last days, the last days of the temple, and it's going to be destroyed. Um, now flip back to 1 John 2, 18 through 27. As I mentioned early, it's important to mark out words or scriptures you don't understand, and then continue on, and most times scripture will explain itself later on. This is one of the greatest examples of that through the word antichrist or antichrist. Now, in all of scripture, and most people who have been raised in the church will probably be pretty stunned by this. In all of scripture, there is only two letters in the entirety of scripture written by the apostles that use the term antichrist or antichrist. Two letters, four whole verses in all of scripture, and three are in the first letter of John, and the fourth is in the second letter of John. Please do not miss this. The only person in all of scripture to use the word antichrist or antichrist is the apostle John, which makes John the best person to explain what that word means. But no, he does not use this word in Revelation. Doesn't happen. Many want to refer to the beast in Revelation as the Antichrist, singular. And although there are similarities between the two, they are not the same. And most people don't even know in Revelation there's actually two beasts listed. The sea beast and the land beast. Most forget to mention that as well. And so John gives his definition of the Antichrist, verse 18 and the rest of these verses. First, and this is an interesting way of putting it, and, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, not the Antichrist, that Antichrist. Then John adds, secondly, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Now this is extremely important. In a single verse, John has used both the singular and the plural usage of this word. John here is using a Greek form of language that we call uh, synecdoche, which means it's a figure of speech in which a term can be used for part of something or the whole or vice versa. It's a simultaneous understanding. An example would sometimes be we refer to the United States as America when the Americas is actually North and South America and it includes all those countries. Um, another example would be Kleenex. Kleenex is both the brand name and it's also used for just the basic tissue concept. And so John is saying, you have heard that a single Antichrist is coming, and then he corrects it and says, no, plural Antichrists have already come, and many Antichrists are coming. John repeats this in 1 John 4 through 1. Turn with me, if you would, quickly to 1 John, just another page, 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come into the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. And because of all that, verse 18, we know that this is uh, the temple is about to be destroyed because the Antichrists have come forward. Now, sidebar comment. 
Did you notice in 1 John 4, 3, if you read just that single verse out of context, especially of the two that precede it, it makes a singular antichrist that is yet to come. And let me just say, every single person who gets this wrong, this is how they get it wrong. They do it by taking one verse at a time out of context. So we're not looking here for a single person to be the Antichrist. There are many of them. It's a class of people. It's a group of people who have some definitional meaning. You can define them by a certain thing, and that certain thing then is brought up thirdly, those in verses 22 and 23. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. Specifically, that's the Antichrist, is one who denies the Father and Son. And since they deny, they fail to confess the Son as the Christ. John goes into more detail in his second letter, 2 John 1-7. through Those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, meaning the Christ, the Messiah, has not yet come. So according to them, Jesus is not the Christ, the Messiah. And this is why back in 22 and 23, they deny that the Father and Son are one and do not confess Jesus as the Christ because they don't believe he's come yet. Now, fourthly, in verse 24, John explains it by contrast. The true abide in the Son and in the Father. And so by contrast, an antichrist does not abide in the Son and in the Father. Remember, John explained abiding in his gospel um, from Jesus' own words by the vine. First, being attached. Second, remaining attached. And then third, bearing fruit. And so the key to everything in doing so is you must bear fruit. And in that explanation in the Gospel of John, those that didn't bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. And by the way, the destruction of Jerusalem, the city burned with fire. Fifthly, verse 26, those who are trying to deceive you. So an antichrist is one who denies the father and son that are one, fails to confess the Son as the Christ, denies that Christ or Messiah has even come, and they do not abide in the Son, and therefore they do not abide in the Father, and then they also fifthly deceive. John echoes this again in his second letter. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those that do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist, 2 John 1.7. John creates some dimension here by adding to his previous definition. The deceivers here are those that take the position that Jesus isn't the Christ and then attempt to deceive people of their own relationship with Christ. And so it's upping the ante in the whole thing. Antichrists are terrible. Deceiving antichrists are worse. And so the main idea is that antichrist is one who both works against Christ and tries to become a substitute that is a false god or false messiah. For the false Jews, it was the perfect keeping of the law, that you could save yourself. For the Muslim, it is the false god Allah taught by a false prophet Muhammad. For the Mormon, it is the Book of Mormon given to mankind by the false prophet Joseph Smith. Lastly, the presence of the Antichrist marks a specific time in history. The last days that was spoken about in verse 18. And this is why we know who John is writing to and when the timing of the letter is so, so very important. Remember I said when we started this letter, John and the other 12 were primarily preaching to the Jews. 
and Paul was primarily assigned to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, came, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Galatians 2.9. So then when, who uh, so then who John is talking about when he uses the term antichrist or antichrist in the present tense, when you read the book of Acts, the group that opposed Jesus the Christ as the Christ or opposed the believing Christians the most were who? The Jews. Not the group uh, that believed Jesus was a Christ. Uh, uh, it's important to understand the most converted people at that time were Jews. Never forget that. The first Christians were Jews. They were the Jews living in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. Thousands of Jews were saved at Pentecost. And the gospel first went to the Jew. But the present Antichrist that John is writing about is the dissenting and deceiving Jews. All of Scripture is for us, but not all of Scripture is to us. And this letter is to the believers who would be most likely of Jewish heritage. And the Antichrist John is pointing out are the false Jews at this time. And those false Jews can show up primarily in two ways. They can deny Christ from the very beginning, has come in the flesh as the Pharisees and Sadducees did. And two, they can come alongside and agree Jesus was sent from God, but you also need to be circumcised and continue with all the Old Testament laws and ceremonies. And they went out from us, but they were not really of us. That's verse 19 that's coming up. So why not just say the Jews? John tells us why in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. The blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. That's about as antichrist as you can get. Then you go to Revelation 3.9. Behold, I am giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Revelation 3.9. This is the point that John's making. A true Jew, a true one, has the correct faith and understanding of creation through salvation, but specifically salvation. True Jews know that the Old Testament is completely about Christ, and so John is trying to preserve the term Jew as the true Jews. And those that say they are Jews but deny Jesus as the Christ are not the Jews of God, but the Antichrist of the synagogue of Satan. That is the closest you can get to defining what an Antichrist is. They were somebody with found significance and rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah. Now, found significance, what do I mean by that? Look at a false Jew in comparison to a Roman. A Roman wouldn't care if Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. It's not a big deal to them at all. There's no threat to their pantheon of gods, meaning we don't call the Romans Antichrist because there's no significance in them because that's who they are. They're not Antichrist plural, even though they might be Antichrist singular. Secondly, I believe the reason John does not use the term Jew um, is that all of Scripture is for us, the readers. In that time, the primary Antichrist was an unbelieving Jew. But in the future, 
The term Antichrist is timeless, where Jew might not be. The Antichrist that will come through the ages is going to be different. The best way for all that would read this book to not be deceived in their time is to use the term Antichrist. It encapsulates literally everything and everyone that would stand in a place belonging to Christ and Christ alone. One last thing, nowhere in the Bible does the Antichrist or Antichrist is described as a political entity as premillennialism makes him out to be. He's not political. He's not a leader who commands an army. And so Antichrist is purely a religious, theologically defined system. There's got to be a temple, a church, or an institution that they have set up in place of Christ. If you need an example of our day and age, the Antichrist churches in downtown Columbia, Missouri, that worship demons of death and sodomy and call it Christ, that is Antichrist. Those are the Jews of the synagogue of Satan. That's what they are. That's Antichrist. Many would argue, as I would, that secularism is also an Antichrist. Now, their primary institution is the government and or the false education system. But the Antichrist that John was writing about were the Jews of the first century that rejected Christ. Which leads us into verse 19. And they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were really of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be manifest that they are not of us. In verse 19, John adds another particular present sin committed by the Antichrist in his day, and it is the sin of apostasy. Those who once professed the faith in Christ. Does that sound like the churches in our own downtown Columbia? That's an Antichrist. But then left the Christian community, even if they stayed inside their own buildings, and repudiated their confession. And so in verse 19, John links Antichrist Jews of his day with apostasy. Now remember the difference between paganism and apostasy. A pagan is one who is an unbeliever who has never made a profession of faith. That's a pagan. An apostate is someone who makes a profession of faith and then later repudiates that profession of faith. That is an apostate can only be someone who has been within the covenant community, the visible church. The great B.B. Warfield and is convinced in this text, John is not talking about an apostasy that will take place at the end of history, manifestation of wickedness and moral decline. He's talking about the apostasy of the Jews in the first century, which was a major problem that is recounted throughout the New Testament time and time and time again. John is echoing Christ, just as all the other New Testament writers did. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, I will, and will mislead many. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is a Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Mark 13, 6, 21 through 22. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 20, 29 through 30. Now, to wrap all this up with a true understanding of why the temple needed to be destroyed. Yes, it had squatters in it, and they were making a mockery of the temple. But this is the key. More importantly, they were counterfeits. The temple was actually constructed 
and led wrongly by the Herodians from its rebuilding. And that's what had occurred between the time of Malachi and Jesus' birth. It was a counterfeit temple from the beginning. The Herodians took the kingship and led to the reconstruction of the temple, even though they were Edomites, meaning from the tribe of Esau, not Jacob. And the Jews knowingly gathered there in that counterfeit temple with a counterfeit priest and a counterfeit sacrifice. Everything physically about that temple was a counterfeit. And Christ in his judgment used the Romans and other nations warring to tear that counterfeit temple down to the ground, leaving no stone unturned in 70 AD. And just as it was done with Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, John mixes in exactly how to avoid the mistakes in his time that Israel had made in the Old Testament and that we're making before his very eyes. And through the writing of this letter, he gave us the reader the same how to avoid those um, mistakes in verses, the following verses, verse 20. But you have anointed from the Holy One, and you know, uh, you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, because you do not know it, or do know it, and because there is no lie of truth. Verse 24. As for you, let which you heard from the beginning abide in you. If that of what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise which he made, him himself made to us eternal life. Verse 27. And as for you, the anointing whom you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not as lie, and just as he has taught you, abide in him. Remember the way to make a high-quality counterfeit, to make it look like the original. To make a high-quality counterfeit bill, you take the original bill and place it next to your counterfeit, and you work on your counterfeit until it looks as closely to the real thing as humanly possible. You don't make a counterfeit by not having the original in front of you. You can't do that. I could not make a high-quality Euro bill because I've never even seen a Euro in real person or even in pictures. So to an attempt to make a worthwhile counterfeit of a Euro would be impossible for me. This is like the Buddhist claims. It doesn't look anything like the original. But if you've never seen the original, it's a pretty good counterfeit. But, and I, I, I use this, like if I had a servant and I asked my servant to go buy a cow, but he's never even seen a cow, he's going to come back with a bag of magic beans, supposedly. That's Buddhism. Never seen the original, never seen anything close to the original. They don't know what it looks like. They come back with something else. But if you've seen the original somewhat from a distance, and this is the Mormon's claim, it looks close to the real thing. So I send out them to buy a cow They've seen a cow at a distance, and they come back with a moose bull, or a bull moose, a male moose. It's not a cow. The reason they can do that is because they've never seen one up close. They've never gotten close to it. They've only had the distance. And in these verses, John tells us how to spot a counterfeit. You don't study the counterfeits. You study the real thing. So whether the counterfeit is at a distance or up as close as humanly possible, it's off. There's something off about it from the beginning. And just as John echoed his Christ, 
Let me echo the faithfulness of John. And to you listen to this message, be trained by him who is the Christ through his word and abide in him until the day he calls you home. Don't wait for the world to end. Wait until he calls you home to glory. But until then, stand at your post that he assigned you to. Amen.